Welcome to 2020, church. I'm about to tell you something that after I tell you, you are not going to be able to unhear it. Uh, once I tell you this, you won't be able to unsee it. Now, what I'm about to tell you isn't gross or too crazy or weird, and I started recognizing that this was an issue about a year ago, uh, but for me to be able to read my Bible, I am now at cheater life. <laughs> Friends, they told me it would hit when I was in my mid-40s. I didn't believe them, but it's true. Okay, not completely true. I don't totally need them yet, but I am so close. In fact, you're going to see this now every time that you see me pick up the Bible. Uh, I no longer can hold it here like I used to. Now I kind of hold it down here. Uh, there's something that happens when we get a little older that we need some help to engage with the text, the print of the Bible. And so cheaters are uh, another name for magnifying glasses or reading glasses. And, and what they're intended to do is to help you see clearly that which is right in front of you. Now, I started realizing that this was an issue for me about a year ago. Uh, and it actually happened when I was eating food. I didn't even know that I did this my whole life. But apparently, I always look at the food I'm putting into my mouth right up until it goes in there. Had no idea I actually did that until all of a sudden, about a year and a half ago, I started realizing I can't focus on it when it gets up here anymore. And I started to have to pull it back to see what is it that I'm actually eating. Uh, same thing started with my Bible as well. And one of the things that I realized is that the Bible acts for you and I much the same way that cheaters act for us to read the Bible. You see, not only do we read the Bible, but the Bible actually reads us. The Bible is a set of cheaters for our life, right? It magnifies that which we hold it up to so that we can see more clearly, so that we know how to live. The Bible is intended to be a magnifying glass, a set of cheaters, so that we can actually see clearly what's in front of us, so that we know where to step, where to walk, where to go, what to do, how to live, how to think. I hear something. <laughs> the, uh, the Bible does that for us. In fact, uh, it actually says it in uh, Psalm 119. You're welcome to flip over there. But Psalm 119 uh, is actually the longest chapter in the entire Bible. There are 22 eight-verse stanzas that is actually a really long poem. Uh, we don't see it in our text because we're reading in English, but in the original Hebrew that uh, David wrote this poem, it actually starts with the first letter of each uh, letter in the alphabet. So uh, the first letter starts the first word of that eight-verse stanza, and it goes through all 22. And the entire thing is about the Bible. It's about the Word of God. It's what David has learned and the ways that it's helped him and uh, uh, how it actually protects him and, and cares for him and why he has found such joy and life within the Scriptures. And we see in one particular verse, probably one you may have even heard before, uh, how David describes God's word. Psalm 119, verse 105. David says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a lamp for my feet, and a light on my path. 
Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. You see, the Bible is intended to help us see things clearly. It preserves life. It thwarts death. Now, I will admit, when I first heard this illustration that David gives, uh, I didn't fully get it. I mean, I knew what he was talking about, but uh, I've lived my entire life in the Midwest. And so for me, that's Illinois, Michigan, and for a few terrible years, Ohio. Um, I try to, try to be careful when I say that word around young kids. You know what I mean? Uh, all three of those states in the Midwest are generally pretty flat, right? Uh, no major cliffs or mountains. Uh, it's pretty lush and green. And, and so when we think about this verse, if you grew up in the Midwest like me, uh, this is probably the kind of path that you think about, right? It's like a path through a beautiful meadow, and it's flat, and you can see where the end is, and you're like, you know what, if I don't want to stay on the path, no big deal, I'll just blaze my own little path. And if I happen to trip and fall, I'll fall into a, a, a bouquet of daisies and lilacs, and it'll be wonderful, right? Like, I mean, that's kind of how we think when we think of this verse, like, why do I need a light for my path? Big whoop. I can make my own path. I know where I'm going. I can see it. It's fine. There's nothing there. But see, the problem is, is David didn't grow up in Michigan. David grew up in Israel. Let me tell you the kind of path that David was talking about when he wrote this. This is a video I took this last year on a path in Israel. This is actually the path from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is the same path that David wrote Psalm 23 about where he says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. This is the exact same path that Jesus was referring to when he talked about the Good Samaritan. You can understand why it would be important to make sure that you stay on the path. Right? One little misstep to the right, and you could be dropping 150, 200 yards down to your death. Now, he says that it's a light, the word of God is a light or a lamp unto his feet. Now, whenever we hear this, uh, we usually think about uh, like mega lumen flashlight. Aren't these things amazing? Look at how bright this thing is. It's crazy. Look at I can see like everything, all right? I'm not going to shine it in your eyes, but... I can sh show this spotlight way down the trail. Right? I, I can look way down. But see, David didn't have mega lumen flashlight. When David said lamp, this is what David was talking about. David would have had something like what you're looking at up on the screen. It's an ancient oil lamp. Would have been filled with some olive oil little wick. I got this when I was in Israel. In fact, I think somebody gave this to us. They're like really cheap. You can find them at pretty much any little store for a buck or two. And it actually does work. That's the lamp David was referring to. Not some mega spotlight, but just a little lamp that would have given off just enough light to be able to see what's in front of you. David says that God's word 
is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, intended to show us what the next right step is. So often in life, we want to just look ahead, right? Just God, tell me where I'm going. I'll figure out how to get there. I don't really need your word to kind of show me around. Just tell me what the end looks like. Man, I'll figure it out. I'll get there, right? Well, the problem is, if the path looks like what David was referring to in Israel, you can't just look ahead and then start running. Right? You're going to fall off the side. Or, or if nothing else, David probably didn't have some sweet new shoes that he got from his wife for Christmas. All right, he had, he had them Nike flip-flops, okay? Like he had sandals, and, and, and all it is is rocks there. Even if you didn't fall off the edge, you still don't want to stub your toe on a rock. Like that stuff hurts. David says, God's word is, is a lamp unto my feet. A light on the path that shows me that next step. You see, what God's word is intended to do is to, to show us things clearly that are in front of us so that we can take the next right step, so we can preserve life and thwart death. That's, that's what God's word actually does for us. Now, um, in just a second, I'm going to ask you to flip over to the passage I'd like for us to look at a little bit more in depth this morning. It's in 2 Timothy. It's in 2 Timothy. The reason, though, that God gives us the Bible is not simply because God wanted to give us a book. God wants to give us himself. You see, the Bible isn't just a book. The Bible is God himself. God speaking to us. He didn't just leave us with some ancient book to try to figure out. He left us with a living word that inhabits his very words. A living word that God himself inhabits and speaks to us through, even today. And that's so important for us to understand. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to read verses 10 through 17. Uh, let me give us a little bit of context, though, before we dive into this. Uh, the Apostle Paul is the one who wrote this. Paul uh, actually had been a hater of Jesus and of the church. Uh, Paul had actually been going around to different cities, persecuting Christians, uh, breaking up families, having people thrown in jail. He oversaw um, the very first uh, murder of a Christian. He was there when it happened. Paul was not, not a good dude until he met Jesus one day. And his life was radically transformed. He went from being someone who hated Jesus and was persecuting followers of Jesus to the, I would say, number one promoter of Jesus in the first century. Uh, in fact, Paul went on trips all over the Roman Empire talking about who Jesus was and how Jesus had transformed his life, what Jesus had done by dying on the cross and raising back to life. And he started planting churches all over the Roman Empire. And one of the churches he planted was in Ephesus. It's a major city. He had a guy named Timothy, which is who this letter is written to. And Timothy was like his protege, a younger guy that he had really built into, all right, had, had mentored and loved on. And Timothy was now pastoring the church that was in Ephesus, the gathering of believers that were meeting there. Paul, at the time that he writes 2 Timothy, we think he's actually imprisoned in Rome, chained in a dungeon. Uh, emperor Nero is the emperor at this point, and Nero is just brutal. Uh, Nero does some of the most grotesque 
uh, uh, awful, unbelievable things uh, to Christians. He hates Christians, and so he's persecuting them all, all over the Roman Empire, but especially in Rome. And uh, Paul writes this letter, and we think it's actually the very last letter that Paul writes. Certainly the last uh, piece of scripture that we have that Paul writes. And so some of his final words are in this to his son in the faith, his protege, Timothy. He wants to encourage Timothy and uh, uh, strengthen him. And, and any time that you have somebody's kind of last words, right, where they've really spent time to think about it, there is real weight, weightiness in what he's saying. And so we really want to pay attention to this. In fact, uh, if you look in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, you'll see that the heading in a lot of Bibles actually says a final charge to Timothy, a final encouragement, final words to Timothy. These are the last things that Paul is saying to Timothy. Let's read what he has to say, starting in verse 10. He says, you, however, Timothy, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. He's like, Timothy, you know all this because, dude, you were with me. You saw this happen. We've talked about all these things. You've seen how God has been faithful every step of the way in my life, Timothy, Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Verse 12. He says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Let me just stop here because this doesn't really have anything to do with our message this morning other than we find it in the text we're reading. (coughs) Excuse me, but I do think that we need to just sit in this for just a minute. Uh, Nobody wants to be persecuted, okay? Okay. Nobody wants to, be, to feel like a reject or an outsider. We all like being on the inside, right? But what Paul says is really important for us to catch. Now, he's certainly saying that to a particular person at a particular time within a context, right? But what he says there, God didn't only intend for Timothy. He intended it for us as well. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In America, look, you need to understand something. Um, That's true for us. If you genuinely want to follow the God of the Bible and know him and obey him and live the way that he calls us to, folks on the far conservative side are going to judge you and ridicule you. Folks on the far liberal side are going to judge you and ridicule you. It's going to happen. I want us to just understand that uh, you can't have your cake and eat it too, which is how I think even I want that sometimes, right? Like, but I want to be like a follower of Jesus, but I still want to be hip and cool. And and I don't want people to dislike me because of something that I believe. I'd rather just try to like figure out a way to smooth that part over or kind of dismiss it a little bit or just be like, well, I don't know if that's really what he meant or you know what, some of that stuff's just old. And so, but the reality is if we're going to follow Jesus, truly, genuinely try to follow Jesus, truly live a godly life, we're going to be persecuted. Now, it doesn't mean that we should go out of our way to be rude or jerks or cruel or mean. That is not the way of Jesus. But when we stand up for what God's word says, it is always, in every time and every culture, going to find itself offensive in one way or another. All right, off my bully pulpit. Verse 13, he says, um, 
while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Keep reading with me now in verse 14. He says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You see, what he's saying here is that, Timothy, you've soaked yourself in the scriptures from the time you were a little kid. My wife loves tea. Any tea, like, freaks out there? I swear, you come to my house, my wife will offer you tea, all right? And she will bring out the world's largest tray heaped with all kinds of different teas. Her favorite, I think, is this thing called Montana Gold. She's always coming up to me like, you got to smell this, you got to smell this. I'm like, I don't care, I don't like tea. But it does smell good, I'll admit it. But I, I, I've learned a couple things, right? Uh, to steep tea, right, to really make the water turn into the, the flavor and the aroma that, that you want, the water's got to be warm enough, and then you put the tea bag in there, and, and you wait for a while, and, and it will transform it. That, that's what Paul says Timothy's done. He's like, dude, from the time you were young, like you soaked in the word, and you were around people that were telling you about the word and living the word out in front of you, and he's like, and, and look what it did. It made him wise unto salvation in Jesus. That, that, that's what soaking in the word does. Soaking in the word brings salvation. It's the place that we find salvation, that we experience salvation. Keep reading, verse 16. It says, all scripture, Timothy, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed. Uh, this is actually an ancient and foundational doctrine to what it means to be a Christian. All right? This is one of the things that uh, we will die for. Okay? It's an understanding of scripture, that scripture is inspired, which literally means God-breathed. Uh, so this morning, uh, we're going to have a little theology lesson, all right? You ready for this? you got to pull out your thinking caps, put them bad boys on, all right? If you want to take some notes, this is your opportunity, because I want to talk to you about verbal plenary inspiration. What? How exciting does this sound right now? Not very. I get it. It's okay. But it's super important, and so I do want to take just a couple quick seconds, and I want to ask the question, what is verbal plenary inspiration because this is a foundational doctrine that we all need to understand if you call yourself a Christian Christians for centuries since the very beginning have believed that this is how scripture operates and what it means so what is verbal verbal plenary inspiration well this answer actually comes straight out of a uh, website called gotquestions.org okay uh, it's a great uh, website um, run by Christians and their theologians and pastors and Bible teachers and uh, they've got all kinds of different questions on there and uh, I want to read to you how they explain verbal plenary inspiration. I think it's important. The answer to what is verbal plenary inspiration is the Bible is God's word to humanity. It was written by human authors but God prompted and guided them to write what they did. Every word Word form and word placement found in the Bible's original manuscripts was divinely and intentionally written. This is the orthodox view of the church and is known as verbal plenary inspiration. Now, what we don't think 
is that the authors went into some weird trance and God's spirit then started telling them the words and they just like typed it out. We actually think God used real humans that lived in a real time to speak to real people who also lived in a real time with real issues, but that when they were writing the words of scripture, God's spirit was supernaturally breathing the thoughts and words into their minds so that they wrote down exactly what God wanted recorded, exactly what God wanted us to know so that we could understand him and know who he was and what he desired of us and how we could have a relationship with him and what we were created and intended to do. So there's three words there that are really important. Verbal, plenary, and inspiration. So let's start with inspiration. Inspiration is the quality of being God-breathed. Verbal and plenary, they just uh, modify or talk about what the kind of inspiration is. So inspiration is the quality of being God-breathed refers to the fact that God supernaturally guided the authors of the Bible to write exactly what he wanted to communicate, okay? Everything in scripture is there because that's what God desired to say to humanity. The extent of that inspiration is defined by the dual terms verbal and plenary. So verbal, what does that mean? That means that every word of scripture is God-breathed, Okay? Every single word, not just the ideas behind the words. A lot of times people say, well, it's not really about the words. It's really more about the ideas, the concepts of the Bible. Like God just wants us to be loving. Well, yes, that's true. God does want us to be loving, but the words actually matter. Now let's keep talking so we can understand a little bit more about that. It's not just the ideas behind the words. Is uh, Every single word, not just the ideas behind the words, is in the Bible because God wanted it there. Okay? God wanted it there. Uh, oh, there's something that I forgot to mention. Uh, it says it a little bit earlier. Uh, the Bible's original manuscripts. When we talk about inspiration, we're talking about the Bible's original manuscripts. Okay? The Bible was not originally written in English. So when we talk about the words are inspired, each and every word is inspired. We're talking about the words that were in Hebrew or in Greek or Aramaic. Those words. Now, when it gets translated, we still believe that our Bible is inspired in English uh, but we don't say that each individual word, right? Because we have different translations in English that might say things just slightly different because we're trying to get to the point of what the original authors intended, what they wanted us to hear, what they were trying to help us understand about God. Plenary means complete or full. This is the last thing I'm going to tell you, all right? And then you can be like, okay, done, school, man, I've been off for a while. All right, so complete or full, when used to describe the inspiration of God's word, Plenary means that all parts of the Bible are equally of divine origin and equally authoritative. Now, uh, this is one of the reasons that I'm not a huge fan of red-letter edition Bibles. Okay, have you ever heard of that? A red-letter edition Bible is a Bible that in the New Testament, they've put all the words of Jesus in red. Okay? And that's to try to differentiate and show these are the things that Jesus actually said. Uh, here's why I don't like that. Um, and if you have one, it's fine. Don't be like, oh, i got to hide my red letter. But it's okay. Like, that's not a problem. But just know this. Uh, whether Jesus is quoted as saying it in the New Testament or the Apostle Paul is saying it or one of the other apostles is saying it, uh, it doesn't make one more valuable or authoritative than the other. Because we believe that all of it was inspired by God's spirit to be God's word for us. The Bible doesn't include the words of God. The Bible is the word of God. This is a foundational doctrine. And this is why it's authoritative. 
because it didn't simply come out of the mind of a bunch of different men in a bunch of different countries over a couple thousand years. It actually came from one source, which is God Almighty, who breathed his inspiration into these folks that wrote the New Testament and the Old Testament for us. So, 2020, new year, new you. That's everybody's saying right now, right? I mean, like, that's like everybody's marketing campaign. New year, new you. Look, uh, I want that to be true of us. I know it sounds cheesy, right? We avoided the 2020 vision, right, as a, as a all right, we're trying not to be, but like, hey, that does matter, okay? We, uh, we say here, uh, healthy things grow. That's one of our values, healthy things grow. A lot of times when people hear that value, they assume that growth is what we care about. Oh, that church is about growth, that's what they want. Just, we don't care about growth. I mean, we do, but like, that's, not prim- that's not primary, it's not the first. What we're focusing on is health, because we know that healthy things will grow. Uh, my wife, for our anniversary a couple weeks ago, uh, she got me a bonsai tree. It's actually called bonsai. Isn't that dumb? I always said bonsai, and I can't, I, I think bonsai sounds stupid, but somebody would correct me. It is bonsai. She got me a little bonsai tree. We have some friends in our small group. They've got a couple of them, and I'm always like, those are so cool. And like, did you know that those things can live like four, five, six hundred years old? Like, it's crazy. And they're just real trees, like the same kind of big tree that you find in your yard, but they're little which I love. So um, she got me one. It's a little $10 bonsai tree that you can like start. And uh, Here's what I found though. These stupid little things are like pets. Like you, you got to every day, you got to do something with it. You got to water it just the right amount. And, and you got to make sure that it's getting the nutrients and stuff. I was like, I thought you just put it by a window and you called it good, which is probably why all my other plants died. But um, you actually got to pay attention to the health of the tree. There's nothing I can do to make it grow, right? Now, I want it to grow. It needs to grow because if it's not growing, that means it's dying. But I can't do anything about that. All I can do is pay attention to the health. And I think that's what God wants for us, TLC. God wants us to pay attention to our health. And we know that the only way that we can engage in spiritual health is by engaging in time with God in his word. Why do I want you to spend time with God and his word in 2020? Let me give you two reasons. The first reason we found in verses 14 and 15, because that's where we find salvation, friends. The reason I want us to learn how to engage in God's word in 2020 is because that's where we find salvation. And do you know what comes with salvation? Joy and freedom and hope and healing and love and peace and forgiveness. Those are the after effects of salvation. And the only place that we can find salvation is in the scriptures when we steep ourselves like a tea bag in hot water. The more that we ingest and sit around the scriptures in it and learning and growing and allowing it to inform who we are and what we become, the, the more we experience the salvation that comes in Christ and Christ alone. All the wonderful things that come along with that. Uh, a few years ago, a church in Chicago called Willow Creek, they they started doing a survey for their own church to see if they were actually growing spiritually the people that were a part of their church. Uh, they wound up taking some of the findings and then opening up 
this survey to a bunch of other churches. And so uh, back when this book was written in 2016, uh, at that point there was over 1,000 churches, over 250,000 Christians who had taken this survey. And let me tell you what they found. They found that the number one indicator of spiritual growth was whether a person was consistently spending time with God in his word. That was the number one indicator. Let me read you a quote from their study, okay? This is a quote from their study. Nothing has a greater impact on spiritual growth than reflection on scripture. They said if churches could do only one thing to help people at all levels of spiritual maturity, all right, because what they found is that they, they kind of found that people tended to fall into three categories of spirit, like either brand new believer, right? Or like been a believer for a little while, but maybe like it kind of plateaued or stalled or like super on fire, like super engaged, doing all the stuff that you need to do to continue to grow. They said, didn't matter where you were at on that continuum, all right, the one thing that churches could do to help people at all levels of spiritual maturity grow in their relationship with Christ, they said the choice was clear. They would inspire, encourage, and equip their people to read the Bible specifically to reflect on scripture for meaning in their lives. Charles Spurgeon said, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Uh, I kind of think of this as like uh, salsa, right? Uh, <laughs> work with me, ladies. <laughs> they were the four up there like, Psh. <laughs> Uh, like maybe you're a brand new Christian. Like maybe for you, you, you literally gave your life to Jesus this past year. And, and, and you're like, man, I know I'm supposed to grow, but I don't really know how. And, 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 I, and I want to. Like maybe you're like that green tomatilla salsa. You know what I'm saying? Like not very spicy right now, but you're like, you're salsa. And like you're in it. And you're going to make your tacos better. It's going to be delicious. Like you want to be a part of what's going on. The number one way that I can help you to grow is to help you learn how to engage with God's word. And maybe you're just like that, you know, mild, medium, you know. Uh, you're kind of like been a believer for a long time, but you've kind of stalled. You've plateaued a little bit. And you're like, I know I'm supposed to, like, I'm supposed to have that habanero, but right now, like, I barely got a jalapeno. And, and so you're like, hey, help me. The number one thing I can do for you is to help you know how to engage with God's word. And maybe you're like ghost pepper, like you're all in it, like you can't even get near the stuff. You start snotting and tears and like, right, like you're just going to come in and go out on fire. You know, like, like that's maybe you, that's great. The only way that I can help you also continue to engage in your growth and development as a Christian is to help you fall in love with God's word. Look, that's where we find salvation. And so no matter where you're at on the spiritual salsa continuum, all right, the number one thing that will help you take the next steps in your growth and maturity is to engage in God's word consistently, to reflect on it, to find meaning for your life. Now, the second reason that I want this more than anything else is not just because you find salvation in it, but also because this is how we get equipped to do every good work that God has prepared for us. Look, you didn't become a Christian just so that you could experience the joys of being a follower of Jesus. That's one of the reasons, and it's a great thing, but it was not only for that. It's not only so that you can experience salvation and the freedom and love and joy and peace and hope that actually comes through salvation, but also so that you could then pass it on to others. 
You want to know what God's plan for you to do? You need to spend time with him in his word. He's got all kinds of good works that he prepared for you to do, for you to do, for you to do, for you to do. And you, and you, and you, and if you don't do them, nobody's going to. And here's what's amazing. Some of the craziest, coolest adventures that I've ever had in my life have come out of these good works that God prepared for me. Man, I didn't even know it. Sometimes I didn't even see it coming. And then out of the blue, like some relationship starts or there's some connection or I get to share my faith with somebody and it, and it makes a difference in their life. Or I've been able to go to other places and serve folks and, and, and love on folks and see cool, amazing things happen. Some of my greatest friendships are folks that I've known because of my engagement in God's word that led me to do the good deeds that God prepared for me. Friends, we're supposed to be people who enjoy the salvation we found in the word of God, but we're also supposed to be people who then pass that on to other folks who are just dying for that. Can you imagine what would happen if our church got passionate about engaging with God in his word this year? I mean, let's think a little bit about that. What would that look like? We would offer one another grace and forgiveness like crazy. Even when somebody was like unkind or hurtful. We wouldn't be able to help ourselves. We, we would be so generous with our time and money. We'd be patient and kind and caring. People would be dying to hang out with us. Like, man, I want to be around those folks. And they're so kind and nice and they, they invite me in. We'd be full of joy and peace even when times are hard. Even when times are scary, even when we don't know what the future holds, people want to be around somebody like that. Like, wow, how do you, how do you hold it together when all this is happening? God's word helps us navigate life. It is a light unto our path, right? It's a lamp for our feet. Uh, I was thinking about like, all right, what do we, what do, we do about this? So we're going to close with two little reflections, okay? Um, I want to ask you about your hebs. Your habits of engagement with the Bible. Isn't that terrible? I was working so hard all week to come up with a really good acronym, and that's like the best I could come up with. It was way better uh, than when I was going to use H-E-W-B, because then it sounds like Hubes, and I was like, you can't say Hubes. Like, that doesn't sound right. So, Hebs it is. We're going with Hebs, okay? Uh, habits of engagement with the Bible. Hebs. I want us to take just a minute, and I want us to think back. How was it this past year? So, you're going to give you just like about a minute, and I just want you to close your eyes right now. Look, God is here in this place. He is present, and God wants to speak with us and engage with our hearts and our minds. And so with your eyes closed, I just want you to allow God to kind of walk you back. What was this last year like for you? Did you feel like it was really strong, and you saw God move in some really cool ways, and you want to continue that in 2020? Did you have some real seasons of, of just dryness and feel like maybe you are in the desert? Were you reading scripture with intentionality and regularity? Were you meditating on it, memorizing it, obeying it? Sit with God. Let him walk you back.
which will slowly start coming back to me. Uh, I was reading an article this past week uh, from Relevant Magazine. Uh, they'd actually sent it out, and it was actually on uh, Bible reading in 2020. They were talking about the fact that so many people will make resolutions or even make goals and how so many of us actually fail in those. And so they were citing a book called Atomic Habits. And in the book Atomic Habits, uh, the author goes through and explains uh, what it actually takes to take just like an idea or a goal and turn it into a consistent reality. And one of the things that he found is that it's super important that we actually create a very tangible uh, plan that gives us a very specific time and place that we're going to do something. And, and folks that have a time and a place of when they're going to do something and decide ahead of time are much more likely to actually follow through with that. So here's what I would like for us to do, church. I want the month of January to be the month of Bible engagement. Okay? Now, I hope that it will spill out beyond January, but let's start there. Okay? Let's start there. Uh, it's going to say uh, something about every day. Uh, if it's not every day, if you can be four or five times a day, like don't create a goal for yourself that is beyond something you can actually do. But I want us to ask this question, and there's two things that are fill in the blanks. Pull out your phone if you need to, all right, to write in your notes or whatever. If you've got a pen, you want to write something down on your journal. But I want you to physically do something right now in answering this question. During the month of January... I will partake in at least 12 minutes of intentional time with Jesus in his word, okay, every day at, and then I want you to fill in a time and a place, okay? So this is for you to, to come up with 12 minutes every day during the month of January and come up with a time and a place, even if it's like, well, every day during the week, like Monday through Friday. I don't care what that is, but... Come up with something and then come up with a time and a place. I'm going to give you about a minute to think about this and come up with a time and a place. Is that easier or harder than you thought? I, I literally, like, I don't, this wasn't just something I was asking you to do. I literally did this in the first service for myself. I came up with a question and I hadn't actually answered it. So first service, I'm doing it just along with everybody else. And I was like, dang, this is actually harder than I thought. Come up with a time and a place that I could do every single day. And I, I started to realize, look, I drink a cup of coffee every single morning. All right, my wife gets up usually before I do, and she puts on some coffee, and so I get up, I have a cup of coffee, and you know what I usually do? I grab my phone, right, when I, when I wake up, and uh, I check to see if I've got emails, right? If I, if I don't have any emails I need to respond to immediately, uh, I'll probably pop on Facebook, maybe look on the ESPN app or something like that, and I just start browsing. And what I decided is that uh, every morning, what I'm going to do when I get up, uh, I'm going to grab my cup of coffee, I'm going to keep my computer closed and my phone off, 
and I'm going to spend 12 minutes with Jesus in his word. And that's how I'm going to start. But I, it took me a while to actually get there. Like, okay, wh- when and where and what kind of, how could I do this? So we've got a little table in our kitchen, a little round uh, uh, table, and that's where I'm going to sit down and do it at. So I don't know what it is for you, but friends, I want this to be something that we become known for. They're people of the word. Like, they can't get enough of it. They fall in love with it. You know why? Because when we dive into God's word and and engage with God himself, right, we begin to get filled up with Jesus. And you've heard me talk about this, and you need to hear it a thousand more times than I'll ever even say it. But if we spend time with God and his word, we get filled up with Jesus. And then when we bump into people, we spill Jesus on them, right? But if we're not filled up with Jesus, we wind up spilling ourselves on them, right? And when I spill Torrin on somebody else, it's usually not a good look. All right, because Torin tends to be a little bit more like angry or selfish or impatient, but Jesus, Jesus is kind, and Jesus is patient, right? And Jesus is joyful, and Jesus is forgiving, and Jesus is gracious, and Jesus is generous, and I want to be filled up with Jesus so that when I bump into people, I spill Jesus on them. And I know that that happens when I engage in God's word on a consistent basis. So friends, let's do that together, right? Let's get filled up with Jesus as we engage in the word so we can spill him all over GR because that'll be a beautiful and awesome thing. I love you. I love our church. I'm so glad that we get to do this thing together. Father God, we want to honor you and follow you. And God, we want to love you. And God, I know that we can't love you if we don't know you. So God, would you reveal yourself as we open up your word? Let us know you so that we can love you, so that we can share you with others. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.